chapter two. Come out from behind yourself into the conversation and make it real. Authenticity is not something you have, it is something you choose. You are an original, an utterly unique human being. You cannot have the life you want, make the decisions you want, or be the leader you are capable of being until your actions represent an authentic expression of who you really are or who you wish to become. The same is true within an organisation. Every organisation wants to feel it's having a real conversation with its employees, its customers, its territory and with the unknown future that is emerging around it. Each individual within an organisation wants to have conversations that build his world of meaning. In the context of fierce conversations, this requires that you pay attention to Woody Allen's first rule of enlightenment, show up. You must deliberately, purposely come out from behind yourself into the conversation and make it real. At least you're part of it. But aren't most people pretty real during a conversation? I wish I could answer with a resounding yes. But even when you're committed to authenticity, it can be surprisingly difficult. In news reports, we often read that someone was speaking on condition of anonymity. Anonymity. A near pathological anonymity and inauthenticity are the stuff of many lives. A friend whose mother had recently died said, My mother never shared her dark days, her troubles with me. I don't feel I really knew her. How real are any of us if we do not share our dark days with those closest to us? If we do not claim our failures as well as our successes? If you listened in on conversations with employees, learned their views of their organisation strategy and then watched them reverse their positions in the presence of higher-ups, or if you tuned in to the internal anguish of someone in a troubled marriage and heard him or her respond, nothing's wrong, to an inquiring spouse, you might conclude, as did Martin Amiss, that we are out there on the cutting edge of the uncontroversial. While many, of our, while many are afraid of real... It is the unreal conversations that should scare us to death. Whoever said talk is cheap was mistaken. Unreal conversations are incredibly expensive for organisations and for individuals. I've witnessed this up close and personal during my work with CEOs. Some things are difficult to talk about because the fix won't be easy. But, as I've said before, if a problem exists, it exists whether we talk about it or not. In fact, as Carl Jung said, what we, what, we, <laughs> what we do not make conscious emerges later as fate. Amen to that. Fate caught up with one of my favourite CEOs who waited too long to address a major shift within his industry. The lesson I learned is that ineffectiveness can be stealthy. It doesn't always come right out and smack you in the face. Few people are eager to confess what's really going on if it will reflect badly on them. Let me tell you about Jim. How many t-shirts does one person need? Early in my tenure of working with top executives, I experienced a stunning end to a meeting with Jim, the owner and president of a company that printed art on t-shirts, which were then sold in retail stores nationwide. Jim and I had filled almost two hours reviewing the progress on his to-do list from our previous session and identifying his priorities for the upcoming month. We talked about the purchase of a new screen printing machine, strategies to increase sales, improvements in communications among top executives, Jim's negotiations with a talented but difficult designer. We talked about a recurring theme, Jim's struggles to balance work and family. 
and, as often happened, we spoke briefly about a shared love, fly fishing, and Jim's latest fly fishing jaunt with his best friend. It had been easy to fill two hours with agenda items, and I was about to walk out of the door of Jim's office thinking I'd done my job. In reality, we had merely been water skiing. With ten minutes left in our session, Jim fell silent and leaned back in his chair. Finally, he said, What if everyone who buys the kind of t-shirts we produce has all the t-shirts they need? I got a chill. What do you mean? Jim continued, Well, think about it. How many t-shirts do you have? A drawful, around ten, fifteen, maybe twenty. You gave me most of them. How many of those did you buy? I thought about it. Probably seven or eight. When did you last buy one of our t-shirts or a t-shirt of any kind? Maybe two years ago? Where? In Maui on Front Street. But you've been to Maui since then, haven't you? Yes. Did you buy t-shirts the last time you went? Um, no. Why not? Well, mostly I wear t-shirts on vacation, and since I have so many t-shirts, I just pack the ones I already had. Have you bought t-shirts as gifts for the family? Yeah, sometimes. But not this last trip. Well, everyone has plenty of t-shirts, just like I do. Besides, they like to choose their own. Different tastes, you know what I mean. Exactly. I felt the air being sucked out of the room. This was what we should have been talking about for the last two hours, and now it was time for me to leave. Another client was expecting me. Jim said quietly, I suspect that the world of fashion is moving away from what we manufacture towards stuff we don't manufacture. Jim, why haven't we been talking about this since I walked in the door? Jim sighed, it's not something I want to think about, much less talk about. But avoiding it is no longer an option. I suspect our flat sales aren't just a short-term dip. I think we've got trouble. In the remaining minutes, I assured Jim that I would carve out time on the agenda for him to put this in front of his peers at the group meeting the next week. I handed him a copy of the issue preparation form introduced in Chapter 1 and we got to work. But we'd waited too long. Gradually, then suddenly, one missing conversation at a time, one less than fierce conversation at a time, Jim's business hit the skids. Six months later, he sold what was left of his company and walked away with just the shirt on his back. <clears throat> his fellow CEOs and I were horrified that we had let this happen on our watch. I fell on the sword. After all, it was my responsibility to surface the most important issues of my members, get them on the table, and do it in time to fix anything that was breaking or broken. I vowed that I would never ever let what happened to Jim happen to anyone else. That I would make sure to surface and tackle the toughest issues the moment they arose. I'd sniff them out if I had a reluctant client or colleague. No more negative suddenlies. This is why I developed the mineral rights model I want you to master, and it has served me well ever since. Not being real and not inviting others to be real and listening to them when they're cost Not being real and not inviting others to be real and listening to them when they are cost Jim his company. <laughs> not being real and not inviting others to be real and listening to them when they are cost Jim his company. They should have put a comma there. It can also cost companies its best employees. One company president I worked with was known to stop candid input in its tracks with the pronouncement, Howard, I do not consider that a career-enhancing response. Howard knew it was time to move on.
Fortunately, few leaders exhibit such exaggerated violations of the general rules of communication. However, greed, hubris or just plain cowardice can cause leaders to duck and dodge the truth, even though history has proved that secrecy is unsustainable, that the truth will eventually surface. I wonder how many employees at Volkswagen and Mitsubishi aware of falsified diesel emissions tests or at Takata, whose exploding airbags caused grave injuries and deaths, discovered that when they expressed concerns, the truth was not welcome. In our significant relationships, in the workplace and in our conversations with ourselves, we'd like to tell the truth. We'd like to be able to successfully tackle the topic that's keeping us stuck or at odds with one another. But the task is often too hard and we don't know how to avoid the all-too-familiar outcomes of talks gone south. Besides, we've learned to live with it. Why wreck another meeting with our colleagues or another weekend with our life partner trying to resolve the tough issues or answer the big questions? We're tired and just want peace in the land. The problem is, whether you're running an organisation, a team within an organisation or your life, you're required to be responsive to your world. And that response often requires change. We affect change by coming out from behind ourselves into our conversations and making them real. Even if it's difficult or it's not always pleasant, authenticity is not something you have, it's something you choose. In Henry David Theroux's Walden, written during his year in a one-room cabin with few possessions, is this quote, The cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life that is required to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run. He was talking about the bigger house and all the stuff we buy that ends up owning us, keeping us awake at night. Amen to that. Let's substitute the word practice for thing. The cost of a practice is the amount of time, energy and dollars that must be exchanged for it immediately or in the long term. There is a direct link between our practices and our results. And in my work with leaders and their teams, the practice that when it is missing costs us the most and when it is present makes the greatest difference is the courage to seek and speak the truth confronting us every day of our lives. Courage is a noun that shows up as a verb. We recognise it by what people say and do. We do what frightens us even in the face of perceived or real personal risk. The man who ran into a house that was fully engulfed in flames to save a neighbour whom he barely knew. We demonstrate strength in the face of pain or grief. The hiker trapped beneath a boulder who escaped by cutting off his own arm with a Swiss army knife, no anaesthetic. While we recognise courage in once in a lifetime go down in history heroic deeds, it's far more powerful as a daily practice. Though you might have to run into that burning house, your courage may be failing you where it counts most, in your day-to-day interactions with the people who are central to your success and happiness. Why courage fails us. Courageous acts, whether played out in the global media or in a meeting room, are fuelled by strong emotion. We don't attempt to vanish off the radar screen in a meeting because we lack heart. We have plenty of heart, strong emotions. The problem is that our primary emotion may be fear. How many times have you told someone what you think he or she wanted to hear rather than what you were really thinking? Painted a false, rosy version of reality, glossing over problems or pretending they simply didn't exist. Tossed out the ceremonial first lie. The desire to keep our jobs, our good standing with our boss and colleagues, overrides the impulse to disclose that, in our view, the latest plan is a really bad idea. What fresh hell is this? 
telling it like it is, speaking the ground truth as opposed to the official party line, which we know to be bogus, is no one's notion of a good time. It's so upsetting, alarming and risky that we're willing to place a for sale sign on our integrity to avoid it. We've all witnessed a kind of violence, uh, lost promotion, raise or place at the table, visited on those you've spoken, who've spoken their hearts and minds. And it is raw. You know how it goes. Someone speaks the truth out loud in the presence of leaders and soon it is difficult to breathe. Tension fills the room. The leader stiffens, gives everyone the look, sweeps the room with it. There's lots of fidgeting and darting eyes until finally the leader speaks solemnly, saying, as if speaking to a carrier of a dengue fever, I'm aware of these concerns, John, Jane, Larry, Linda. We've got it covered. Translated, what part of team player did you not understand? So what do we do? We practice withholding what we really think and feel, which costs us big time. Meetings produce more nothing than something. Ideas die without a funeral or proper burial. Conclusions are reached at the point when everyone stops thinking, which is often short of brilliant. Communication is primary from the leader to everyone else. No point in telling our leaders what we're actually dealing with every day, since to do so would not be a career-enhancing move. And this is a shame, because our first thoughts, unfiltered, uncensored, are usually onto something. Yet all too often, the courage to capture and voice them fails us. The fierce alternative. The practice that must take centre stage today is radical transparency. Human beings are hardwired to solve problems and are usually successful when they address the real problems, the root causes of whatever challenges they're encountering. Coming out from behind yourself into your conversations, pushing aside inhibitions and those negative voices in your head that are telling you what you have to say is not valuable, won't be welcomed. And making them real is especially important when things have gone sideways, when your organisation or your team or you yourself have come under public scrutiny. Rumours, criticisms, anonymous blasts in public forums... You made a well-regarded employee available to industry, but there's a backlash. Why didn't we throw a going-away party? You know what was going on behind the curtain, and the sooner you said goodbye to that person, the better for everyone. But what do you disclose to those clamouring for an explanation? Or there's a false rumour about your company. The company is being sold. You have no idea who started the rumour or why, and it isn't true. Should you address this? If so, how? And what about inaccurate anonymous posts in public forums by disgruntled former or current employees? The executives receive huge bonuses. Not true. Where, when and how should you respond? How do you motivate employees, keep them focused and keep them, period? Of course, the short answer is, tell the truth. Admit to mistakes, reveal your plan. Since problems rarely solve themselves, let's talk about it. Sounds straightforward, but telling the truth simply and courageously doesn't always solve the problem because of challenges all truth-tellers face. The truth is complicated. Leaders can't be aware firsthand of every broken or limping segment of an organisation. What don't you know? Who does know? Are you sure you've got the whole picture? Have employees withheld what they know in fear of retribution? 
Even if you lay it all out for everyone to see, some will reject your version. As a friend said to me, I have my truth and you have yours, but my truth is truer than yours. We've pitched our tent on our truths and plan to camp there indefinitely, even if we've camped on stony ground. There's a tiny factory inside us that produces horror stories. Human nature is strange in that many people prefer tragedy to comedy, sturm and dang and drang to blue skies, melodrama to documentary. And even if you say, I take that back, or that's not what I meant, it won't help. The story others have manufactured is out there and it's never going to shift. Human nature is also hardwired to lie, to protect itself at all costs, including putting a for sale sign on its integrity. Sadly, this is what many employees expect of leaders. So why should they believe you? Lie to us once, stretch the truth, or gloss over unsavoury truths, painting a rosy picture that we know to be bogus, and we're on to you. So what do you do if your organisation is under scrutiny? (laughs) Keep telling the truth and inviting it from others. The level of candour in your organisation depends on your level of candour every day. Own up to mistakes. Don't say, mistakes were made. That's a duck and dodge. Fess up to any blunders that have your name on them. Lay out your conclusions, your solutions, your strategy and invite input from all points on the compass and all of the stripes on the beach ball. Keep employees current and make yourself available for impromptu conversations. It will take more than one meeting, one email to settle the dust. But, as I've said before, while no single conversation is guaranteed to change the trajectory of your organisation, any single conversation can. You don't know if the person asking, do you have a minute, could trigger one of those conversations. Stay calm and grounded. Unless your organisation has engaged in wholesale massive deception, this storm is temporary. Issues heat up and cool down. Remain open and available to those who don't believe you or who may have helped spread rumours. Gradually, then suddenly, one conversation at a time, you can regain their trust. And what if your company did something unethical or careless that caused harm and now it's out there in the world? Think banking practices that brought the US economy to its knees. Think emissions cheating, toxic chemicals, faulty airbags. Think law enforcement behaving badly or something terrible and unintended occurred through no conscious involvement or intent on the part of your company. Think E. coli. The same advice stands. Tell the truth. Lay out the plan. Invite input. In The Horse Whisperer, Robert Redford's character says... Knowing something's easy, knowing something's easy, saying it out loud is the hard part. Most importantly, fess up to anything you did or didn't do that contributed to the problem. If you did something you knew was deeply wrong, admit it and resign. Do what my mother instructed my siblings and me to do. Go to your room and think about your sins. Think long and hard. Clean up your act. You may need to start over somewhere else. A few years ago, while I was working with top executives, an environmental disaster involving their company occurred. When I asked if they had taken the specific action that would have discovered and averted the disaster, after a long silence, the CEO said that they had. I learned later that he was lying. In fact, he was being coached how not to tell the truth in preparation for his appearance before a US Senate panel. 
It didn't go well. He and his executive team ended up contemplating the ashes of their downsized opportunities. <clears throat> Leadership is not a title. It's a practice, as, a tra- as is transparency. Don't just talk about transparency. Be transparent. As I've said before, there is something within us that responds to those who level with us, who don't suggest our compromises for us. Rumours blow over. Disgruntled employees move on. Your job is to navigate the riddle of leadership, the uneven terrain, the unpredictable weather and the narrow margin of approval by which you retain the right to lead. Strong leaders know that things will improve only by coming to grips with how bad things are and how they got that way. Building a good plan and staying the course one conversation at a time. Weak leaders want agreement. Strong leaders want the truth. They tell the truth as they understand it and encourage those they lead to tell them the whole truth. Paint the whole picture, even if it's ugly, unpleasant, not what we wish it to be. Because only then can we put our best efforts forward to fix what needs fixing. If you're a leader, your job is to accomplish the goals of your organisation. How will you do that in today's workplace? In large part, you will do it by making every conversation you have as real as possible. The first frontier is finding your own courage. Many work teams have a list of undiscussables, issues they avoid broaching at all costs in order to preserve relationships, keep the meeting short, stay out of trouble. In reality, relationships, teams and the companies they work for steadily deteriorate for lack of the very conversations they so carefully avoid. Those hard questions and controversial topics are the very ones that need to be discussed in order to move the company forward. It's difficult to raise the bar if it has remained low over a period of years, and that's what keeps many of us stuck. A few years ago, I was privileged to help a company kick off the introduction of fierce conversations to their leaders in Europe. The meeting was in a former gentleman's club in London. The first thing the attendees saw when they walked in was a poster with the question, What are our Makitas? A Papua New Guinea word for that which everyone knows and no one will speak of, the elephant in the room. As they walked down the hall towards the meeting room, there were more posters suggesting topics guaranteed to provoke high emotions, competing perspectives and fierce debate. There was a blow-up elephant in the meeting room. The managing director said, This elephant may look cute and friendly, but he's a problem. The managing director was convinced that until these topics were aired and resolved, the European division of the company was in no danger of achieving their goals. They talked courageously and skillfully for two days. I can practically hear you groaning. I don't have time for a two-day meeting. No one on my team does. And Soto voice. And even if we did, no one would disclose what they really think and feel. As I've suggested earlier, not having meetings like this will take you longer. Initiatives may stall. People will likely offer valid excuses to explain disappointing results. Engagement will diminish. The competition may already be surpassing you and poaching your best people. Even though you lowered your price, customers are still leaving. Margins are shrinking and you are not sleeping well at night. Time is not the issue. The issue is what gets talked about in your company. In London, two days of radically transparent conversations resulted in increased clarity, accountability, collaboration and partnership across the leadership team, which translated directly to the top and bottom lines. 
If you would like to see more courage in your organisation, model courage yourself. Ask, what is the most important thing we should be talking about? What are our Makitas, those elephants in the room that we're ignoring? Radical transparency can be scary, but it rocks. It's for those who are not interested in living a guarded, careful life and are quickly bored in the company of those who are. It's for those who would choose a fierce conversation, a fierce relationship, a fierce life over the alternative any day. Being real is not the risk. The real risk is that I will be known, I will be seen, I will be changed. Think about it. What are the conversations you've been unable and unwilling to have with your boss, colleague, employee, customer, with your partner, parent, child or with yourself that, if you were able to have them, might change everything? Contemplating some of those conversations may increase your blood pressure, but as Ray Bradbury suggested, go to the edge of the cliff and jump off. Build your wings on the way down. One of the most interesting phenomena I've noticed, personally and in others, is our ability not to know what we aren't ready to face. I'd like you to meet my friend Alice. Alice and Gary. A 60-second fierce conversation startled Alice into showing up and changing her life. After graduating from college, Alice married a fine person. Gary was in law school and Alice taught in a high school. Halfway through law school, Gary realised he had gotten into law for all the wrong reasons. Recognition, status, income, his parents' approval. His romanticised version of what it would be like to attend law school did not match the reality. In fact, he found that he didn't enjoy his classes and had no real calling for law. So he dropped out and joined Alice in teaching. At the time, Alice defended Gary to his disappointed parents and particularly to his mother, who pulled Alice aside and said, you'll see, he's never finished anything he started. When the military draft was about to intervene in their lives, Gary joined the Air Force. Alice stopped teaching to follow him from base to base and begin a family. After a few years, however, a yearning to farm possessed Gary. So when his stint in the military ended, he and Alice moved to the Midwest where Gary helped his parents with their small farm, intending to do more as his parents aged. As the reality of what it took to run a farm became increasingly clear, Gary became restless once again. His idealised Norman Rockwellian view of farming did not match up with the reality of endless chores, long days and meagre income. Gary began to toy with the notion of teaching at a university, envisaging himself happily immersed in academia. So the family, which now included two young boys, moved to Oregon, where Gary had been offered a scholarship to complete the degrees necessary to launch the next phase of his career. Three years into the programme, Alice discovered that Gary had not attended classes for more than a year. Instead, he had been slipping back into the house after their sons had gone to school and Alice had left for work. Gary had derailed professionally again. He was, by this time, understandably embarrassed. He admitted that he had found himself disinterested in academia, but that he didn't know what he really wanted to do, and he suggested that the best plan for the foreseeable future was for him to remain at home, handling the cooking and cleaning, running the endless errands required of a busy family, and most important, being there when the boys got home from school. He assured Alice that he would be happy as a house husband. Alice was dubious, but acquiesced. It was nice not to have to go to the grocery store and to come home after work and smell dinner cooking. At the time, Gary and Alice attended a Sunday school for couples in their 30s. 
About a year into their new arrangement, the topic in Sunday school was the role of women of a woman in marriage. The discussion leader read passages from the Bible that suggested women should be at home filling jars with oil, weaving cloth and putting up olives. Alice stood up and gave an impassioned speech about how, while that may have made sense when the Bible was written, things were different now. Women had many options available to them and, as everyone knew, though Gary and Alice had reversed the traditional roles, they were deeply happy. Alice got a standing evasion and sat down, feeling pleased with others' response to what she had said. As Alice walked out of the room on her way to the 11 o'clock service, the husband of one of her friends came up, put his arm around her shoulders and whispered, I love you a bunch, but with all due respect, you're full of shit. Alice stared, open-mouthed, as he continued, This isn't working for you, Alice. You hate the whole arrangement, and you have lost respect for Gary. What are you pretending not to know? In that instant, and not a moment before, Alice knew that he was right. Not because reversals of antiquated gender roles are impossible, they're not, but because of the reality of the life she was living. Had Alice really not known what she was feeling? Some people might find that difficult to believe. But until that moment, Alice had been unconscious of her true feelings. She had successfully swept them under the rug. In the movie, The Madness of King George, a character says to the king, You seem yourself, Majesty. King George responds, I've always been myself, even when I was sick. But now it seems I've developed a talent for seeming to be myself. Both Alice and Gary had seemed to be themselves. But now... As Alice thought about it, she imagined that Gary was probably as unaware as and as unhappy as she was. They were both suppressing emotions too painful to examine. Talking about their feelings might force an outcome for which they were not prepared. It took one comment for a friend who must have been paying fierce attention to the intent beneath Alice's words, to her body language, the slant of her back held too proudly perhaps, to put her in touch with reality. Six months later... After many impassioned conversations, Alice and Gary realised that it is possible to love someone and not love your life together. Gary returned to the Midwest while Alice and her sons remained in Oregon. Gary has since remarried and is enjoying a satisfying career as a high school teacher and football coach. Alice's career continues to thrive and she is dating someone who, with whom she feels deeply compatible. To this day, Alice wonders how long she and Gary might have trudged along, pretending not to know how deeply off-kilter their marriage was. She is grateful to the man who took the risk to deliver a badly needed message to her, unfiltered and to the point. That is not to say you should go around critiquing the marriages of others, but this story shows the power of one open and truthful conversation. <laughs>